Welcome, Foul Tarnished. You are listening to Elden Kings, an Elden Ring discussion. Tonight, we're happy to invite a guest who has been a long-term content creator in the Souls community, Quailag. Hi! Uh, hey there, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing good. I'm like just waking up, so we're gonna be we're gonna be picking up steam as we go on. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a train, you know. It's uh, maximum yeah. speed will be reached. <laughs> I'm oiling the gears with lots of coffee right now, but I'll let you keep going. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, as many of you viewers have, uh, will know who have like watched her content before, she's released a plethora of videos published on topics going from like complex interpretations of lore, you know, color theory, inspiration from actual history and mythology, all the way to uh, breaking down Dark Souls 2 through drawing. Um, which was one of my favorite videos when I went through her channel. Um, uh, so yeah, Quailig's got a lot of thoughts brewing over these games and the sources of inspiration they draw from. Um, I think in your Twitter bio it says that George Martin is your dad, so I'm sure you've got a lot of personal uh, you know, insights into um, Elton Frank. So... Yeah, he helps me cheat on my videos. <laughs> he, writes, he writes my videos, he ghost writes my videos for me. <laughs> it's like a dad doing, you know, his daughter's math homework. <laughs> he's not my dad, by the way. For those of you who don't, who aren't in on the joke, he's not my dad. <laughs> <laughs> That's like the deepest insight. <laughs> so, uh, I know that you've been into Soulsborne stuff for a while. What was your first game? So... Um, my first introduction to FromSoft games, I actually used to play, there was like Tenchu Z that came out. Um, I played the other Tenchu games that weren't by FromSoft, but I'm pretty sure that that one was a FromSoft game. And then I also played a lot of Armored Core. I'm a big mech person. Um, I used to play Gundam Extreme Verse competitively out of like an arcade back, back in the ye old days. Um, that was kind of like my background and how I got introduced to the Souls series. But I, what really made Demon Souls like stick for me is that I had played Drakengard um, growing up, and for some reason the vibe and just like the item descriptions that you get to read on the weapons was very Drakengard. Like Drakengard has stories for each of the swords that you pick up, um, and that that's what made it really stick with me was like the weird kind of esoteric storytelling that you kind of pick up along the way as you're experiencing the game. Yeah, I can certainly see how that would, um, how all of that would combine. I've always been a big fan of Mecha in general. I mean, like, Evangelion's one of my favorite anime, so, um, yeah. I can, I wish I had been in the Armored Core back when it was popular, but, uh, I haven't tried it, so I'm super hyped for sex. Um, y yeah, I always recommend people check out uh, four, four answered. Um, Nexus is pretty good, but um, four and four answered are kind of like the most approachable of the games. Um, but I know a lot of people who are just starting out their armored core journey after the announcement are kind of starting at the the base, um, or starting out with one or with two. Which I have like a soft spot for two because that was my first one. But uh, you know, as far as approachability goes, um, from a FromSoft game to like, say if you're if you're a Dark Souls veteran. Picking up four is kind of like the most. It's like the the most like the the framework and the bones are the same in a lot of ways, so it it feels right when you pick up kind of a newer installment. 
That makes a lot of sense to me. When after it was announced, I tried emulating five on my PC and it went okay. It was pretty stuttery, so I had to drop it after a couple of missions, but I really liked it. What does that land in your lineup of like approachability? Um, so five is like interesting because it was more obviously it was a more recent like iteration of the game, but from what I understand, Miyazaki wasn't on that one. Um and it feels a lot more like I would say like the mechs feel because you could get pretty you could move pretty quickly with five. Um but the mechs feel more like clunky and like a little bit more grounded in realism than like four you can get really crazy. <laughs> you can like move really quickly. It almost feels more anime inspired, like less grounded in reality or less military. And I think that the soundtrack lended itself to being less military or like not having that kind of mecha vibe to it. Five feels very um, you know, it feels very grounded in that that kind of era of mech games. I don't know if I'm making any sense to you at all. <laughs> no, no, but, that makes a lot of sense. It's yeah, like a dichotomy of two takes on the same. Um, yeah, because there was an era of mech games that was very much focused on like, um, you know, there's obviously like anti-military, anti-war sentiment, and I think Miyazaki had that super present in four. Um, super present and for answer. It's been like a, a theme in the Armored Core series, just like the whole the whole series has been kind of like dystopian. Um, there's aliens. There's like a lot of like interesting stuff that's happening in that in that world. Um, but I do feel like five, as far as the story went and as far as um just the overall vibe of it, it just didn't feel quite the same as four. Like you can you can feel the difference. You can feel the difference in the atmosphere and the storytelling and yeah, it's it's interesting. Five also has um it had this multiplayer mechanic where there was a big map and everybody would fight for territory over it with like guilds effectively. And I remember back when it was live, like back when the map was I don't know if it's still live or if they shut off support for it, but pretty much all of the uh Reddit 4chan you know, it was like Lale Lulelo groups took over the entire map. And there was like a certain set amount of people that could be like in a in a company or like in a guild. So they just made like a bunch and every single like tile that you would click on, it was like owned by a subsidiary of Lale Lulelo. <laughs> so it was kind of it was interesting to see. Um, you know, it didn't it didn't really feel like there was much individuality individuality amongst the groups it kind of seemed like everybody worked really hard together to take over the whole map collectively which is <laughs> kind of an interesting thing to witness i feel like if you were a part of it yeah that's like an interesting part of internet history it's like an entire forum like group of forums going after this video games ter like <laughs> pvp territory that's sort of funny uh yeah exactly and like I think that that kind of added to this this interesting relationship with players and their like feeling of control over um, like maps and territories and just like the game world when you're playing as like a mercenary for different kind of like dystopian corporations. The relationship there just felt a little bit weird, but um, I'd have to like do like a whole breakdown on on why I. I feel just weird about five. It's just like a, it's its own thing, and I don't want to derail <laughs> derail the whole <laughs> podcast to talk about it. But yeah, it's it's an interesting one. I would I would say gameplay wise, it's good. Uh, 
but some of the other elements of it were kind of like a weird miss. I can see like that. Like, they just missed on some of the overall themes, I guess, that were present in the previous ones. Well, it's like, it's still post-apocalyptic, and there's still some, you know, like, there's like some resistance fighters, and there's a bunch of other stuff that's that's happening. Um, but, I don't know, it just, it feels more grounded in, like, Western military mecha games, like, or like a... I'm trying to think of like the atmosphere is more like Titanfall. I really do think it is largely due to the soundtrack, which huh. is like a bizarre thing to like attribute that weird Western feeling to. Um, but the soundtrack in previous games was done by Frequency, so it was kind of like J Rock or J Pop. There was a little bit of shoegaze, which is so random for it doesn't it doesn't really fit the vibe if you think of like being a mercenary that's like hired by a corporation, um, you know. And you're you're riding around in a big mech. You wouldn't think to be hearing some like shoegaze, like garage rock, in the background. You'd be thinking of like, you'd be thinking of hearing, you know, like a big orchestra or like something, you know, I don't know what whatever the fuck whatever music plays in Top Gun. I don't know. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> oh, vaguely. Uh, I'm trying to picture it. <laughs> yeah, it's like you you wouldn't. I don't know, when you think of like big military or big corporations and you think of like what kind of music they would be playing versus, you know, somebody in their garage just jamming out with their friends. That's kind of what frequency like has in terms of like their vibe when they when they were like coming in and like playing a lot of the music for a four. Um it's just like a it doesn't fit, but in a good way, in like the best possible way. Okay. But yeah. Is it like it's a combination a of garage rock and orchestra, or is it like a uh, like one of yeah, the other orchestra? Or there are some songs that are orchestral. Um, like certain boss fights get very like epic, but for the most part, when you're flying around and you're um, you're there are certain bosses too where uh, they just have like distorted guitars <laughs> and some person who sounds like they're singing into like a you know a styrofoam cup. <laughs> and it's really like I don't know, it's like very My Bloody Valentine. It's very shoegazy, it's very like dreamy. Which um I don't know, I don't think of that inherently when I think of like giant robots. <laughs> which is funny. Um but it works somehow. And it, it created this like really unique atmosphere. Yeah, and they sort of lose that when they go into the more just like sort of rock and uh, like general aesthetic of five is what you mean. It has it goes from like the dreamy, no, not so, fitting, or so five departs from that. Five doesn't have as much J rock or like J pop yeah. kind of music. It uses more of the yeah, yeah. It uses more of the orchestral. It uses oh. more of the kind of like um, kind of like grungy military, you know, sounds or noise. It's it's kind of like there's a huge conversation in the um in the Souls community about the um, transition that Blue Point did with Demon Souls, where the original Demon Souls had a very like melodic MIDI soundtrack that was very easy to to hear. You like hear the melody as like a player, even as somebody who's not fluent in music, you can like think of the the notes in the song. Um, but then as soon as you go into like really complex orchestral variations of the song, it almost loses its identity. You can't break apart the the melody or like those you know 
because I could I can like hum the uh, Tower Knight song or Maiden Astraea song, but as soon as you go into like the super complex orchestral music, it becomes a lot harder to pick out the melody. I can't even think of it. I can't even think of the Blue Point versions of the music. Um, because I'm not. I I know enough about music to like understand what I'm talking about, but I don't. I don't perform classical music. So I, I'm not, it's almost like a language that I'm not fluent in. So when I'm hearing it, I like don't hear it. Yeah, you don't sense. pick up on all of it. Like the subtle yeah. details of the music elude you. I, I get what yeah. you mean. So it's not bad, but um, at the same time, it's like difficult for me to parse what I'm hearing. And I think a lot of people were complaining about that with the Bluepoint version of the game, along with the artistic changes. But I feel like um, Armored Core's identity with its music is really similar where it's like, one created a very unique atmosphere that like you know it i think that the reason why it stood out to me in four and four answer is because that kind of garage rock or the shoegaze or the the kind of like music you'd make with your friends you know or whatever something that feels really familiar gives you a sense of like personal identity in like a setting that is largely about selling yourself um to a corporation so it feels like you and your experience as a pilot or like a mercenary um, is still an individual despite being consumed by everything going on around you, like corporations or the world's decaying or whatever. It, there's like this really raw kind of like punk feeling about it. Whereas the other one just kind of felt like, okay, I'm like a pilot, I'm a pilot and I'm, you know, I'm working for a company. And there, there was no sense of like heart or like hope there. It just was, you just were a mech pilot. <laughs> There's nothing, okay. there's nothing else to it. I like that way of describing it. It definitely does have a more punk atmosphere in 4 where you can feel the individuality of your character. Yeah, yeah. I just, I will totally derail this whole podcast to talk about Armor Core, so just be careful. <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean, I think it's a good portent for like the, you know, we're gonna, I want to get into everything that comes up, so mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. you're, you're totally valid. Um, like, you also mentioned the Drakengard right off the bat, and uh, oh like, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, I, I love Drakengard. I've played one and part of three, not all of one, I've played like half of one, part of three, and then I've played all of Nier Automata and like the Nier Replicant game that was, that came out. So like, yeah. I don't know, I'm a big fan of the newest stuff and I tried, I, I really hope that we get something akin to Drakengard in the future. It's so interesting. Yeah, I feel like it's so important to the in-game universe that he's built out, even with, because he has the mobile game Reincarnation that he and a few of the other writers have worked on. And they're definitely... They've been working really hard to bring up the um, story elements of Drakengard a lot. Like, obviously, the Nier universe was born out of Drakengard interaction. Yeah, the white um, chloroform. Or... Yeah, and like yeah. Angelus's dead body and interdimensional travel and like all this other stuff. But they, um, you know, they do a really good job at referencing the Black Flower and Mosso and like all the elements of Drakengard. But it kind of seemed like they just abandoned it, you know, because Nier was the more successful IP. Um, Automata really, like, changed things. But I, I remember hearing in an interview that, that Yoko Taro would want to go back to Drakengard or that he would he would love to do a remake. So I would be super excited if they did a remake because um, 
that was one of the most formative games of my life, I think. <laughs> that one in, um, like, Drakengard 1. Um, I then got the collector's edition of Drakengard 3, so I have, like, the little novel that it came with. And then um, Shimagame Tensei Nocturne. I think those are, like, my, my kind of, like, big story ones. And I, I didn't actually play near. It was interesting. I didn't play near until a little bit later in its life. Um, my friends were like forcing me to play it. They were like, this game is amazing. This game's amazing. But I didn't know it was by Yoko Taro and I didn't know it was, um, it was related to the universe at all. And, um, the box art completely like threw me off. Cause that was during the era where everything was brown, <laughs> like <laughs> call of duty was brown. Most 360 or PS3 games just had a very brown, dusty aesthetic and Nier's box art looked very brown. <laughs> And I was just like, I'm, you know, like, I'm tired. <laughs> I'm tired of all these games looking the same. Like, I was really drawn to games that were very vibrant and had, like, a really unique visual identity at the time. I think because the market was oversaturated. But I slept on Nier. And I slept on, um, there's a game, Resonance of Fate, that I didn't get to play until later. Um, both games are phenomenal. And their box art did them, like, a huge disservice. <laughs> oh, no. But... Yeah, I've always thought the near dark side, like it, it just shows the characters and then the ruined city, which is serviceable, but it's not, you know, it's nothing like that stands out. I got into yeah. it from like watching online YouTube videos and I was like, damn, that's some awesome combat. And that's the music was what captured me. I, I like listened to the amusement park theme so many times before actually buying the game. Oh, are you talking <laughs> about. Uh... Automata? In Automata, yeah, my bad. Oh, yeah, yeah, here, hold on, wait, I'm gonna shoot you, I know that people on the podcast, people on the podcast can't see it, I'm gonna show you what the, this is like the original Nier, not the, not Automata, but. Um... Oh, you mean the older Nier, okay, yeah, mm -hmm, that's my bad. Mm -hmm. So, like, look at this oh, boxer. Oh, boy. <laughs> this was at the height of Skyrim, this was at the height of, uh, you know, Call of Duty, Modern Warfare 2, like, literally every box art had some kind of, like, cracked out viking on the cover of it or like with a just giant some sword yeah and like the art style of this um it was just brown it's literally like if you if you take like a teardropper and you like click anywhere on this anywhere anywhere at all it'll be brown there's no color there's like nothing um and i think that there was just like this period of games that was just like this it was it was bizarre it was a weird time <laughs> It was a dark age. It was a brown the dark age. age. Yeah. It was definitely like PS3 era games. PS3, um, 360, like really early, kind of mid, I don't know, mid or early. Before before we got a lot of really good, uh, I don't know. I feel like studios are definitely, because there's a lot of like internal industry pressure um, to like make things look really super flashy and like have amazing graphics and and you know it, it's just like hard on everyone right now but um i'm glad and happy to see like the success of the the indie dev scene and how people are pushing the envelope visually a lot it's i feel like we're in a better era than back back in the old days for sure and then here's a uh, here's resonance of fate that i'm i'm showing you the picture of it's just brown yeah. It's just brown. Everything is just brown. <laughs> I don't it's know why. It's a very why. singular palette. Yeah, it was very muted. Yeah. I'll put those images up on the YouTube release for anyone watching there. Um, 
Huh. I never I never was into like the marketing back then when I bought games and I never played Nier until later on with Automata, which launched me into the series, but I definitely would not have picked that up either. Like I cannot blame you. Um <laughs> that looks rough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like Nier has a good story too. Like I know that like didn't they change a lot in the near like the Japanese version to the US version? Like they made him tr- they tried to like market him as um, the girl's dad instead of his her sister, and he went from being yeah, like a JRPG uh, protagonist to like. Yeah, so <laughs> there's there's a lot of, um, I it's weird because I've heard conflicting things. I've heard that they made Dad near specifically for the West, um, but I've also heard like other because because the big thing was like, oh, Dad near is going to test or be receptive received more positively in the West than, um, you know, than, like, her having a brother. And I think that, like, I've grown really fond of, we call him Papanir. I've grown really (laughs) fond of Papanir. He's, like, become one of my favorite characters in gaming. Um, And Jameson Price was his voice actor, and he does, like, a phenomenal job. He's, like, just one of the best, one of the best older voice actors. Um, He's not, like, ancient but like older in the sense of like he was around really common in like the late 2000s um or early early 2000s late 2000s um but he's he's just an insane actor he also uh plays what's that character from blast blue uh iron tager um i think is like another popular voice that he's done he's done a lot he's done a lot of work um but brother near i think makes sense um, because the whole the whole game is taking like an interior look at video games and why we kill people. Um, and so Brother Near, you know, going from being a kid to kind of being like a young adult, mirrors um, Zelda Ocarina of Time with Link, you know, starting off as like a kid and then becoming an adult. And the newer iteration of, um, you know, Near Near Replicant, the one that came out very recently they they definitely hone in on the the zelda um kind of like references every time you open a chest or get an item your character will like hold it above their head you know like (laughs) yeah kind of like an excitement so they're they're making sure that that nod or, or the reason why they picked a younger character has to fit the atmosphere a little bit more um because it's like looking at like it's looking at violence in video games. It's like a big point of it. It was also inspired by 9-11. There's just like a lot. There's oh a lot boy. with the story. I never knew that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, like Drakengard was Yoko Taro's look at why people kill people. It was like his first thesis. He has a whole amazing interview that I could link to. Um, his first thesis when he was making games was like, why do people kill people? And he was like, well, they must be insane. So a lot of his characters that do like violent um acts or like are overly violent are typically people that are not like well or they're victims of abuse or they're kind of like swept up in religious fervor that's kind of the motivations of why they would like hurt others but um near flips it on his head where he actually puts a you know a looking glass up to a character who is violent and who is hurting others because they love people in their life they love their family they love their little village and like you are the villain in the game you're going around and you're killing 
you know, I'm not going to spoil things for people that haven't played it, but you go around and you kill little monsters and stuff, but um, it's taking kind of like a critical look at our relationship with, with killing and um, why we would be motivated to commit like an act of violence. As so someone that... Oh. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Go for it. Go for it. Yeah, okay. As someone that knows the reveal, I definitely can picture how that theme would carry throughout the entire game. And, like, yeah, that, that, that definitely adds up. You know, it's, um, Nier is all about deconstructing something, deconstructing that JRPG mindset of just killing everything you come across. And it builds that up by, like, having a reveal throughout the game that recontextualizes things and, like, helps you, uh, you know, really understand how monstrous you are. Whereas like other games, like Drakengard 1, when you're Kaim, you're just like this mute person. You give up your voice in the very first mission of the game. And then you go on to like do all of these terrible acts of violence. So it really puts you into like the mindset of that silent protagonist and how awful that sort of, I don't know, like vibe can be. But like, I'm interested to hear yeah. where you were going to go finish with like, you know, your own thought. <laughs> Oh, oh, I was just saying he's a, Yoko Taro is just a really interesting dude, but I agree with what you said where it's like Kaim, um, you know, he's, he's an awful person and he was like raised to be a killer. Like he was raised to be how he is. And there's this sense of entitlement with like, you know, royalty. Obviously he's motivated to protect his sister, but ultimately it comes out of, it comes out of a little bit more of like a sick desire for him and it's through his like relationship with Angelus that he actually grows quite a bit and Angelus becomes like a little bit of a maternal figure. There's also some like hints that she potentially loved him. Um, there's like a lot of, a lot of subtext there um, regarding their relationship, but it's the fact that their relationship is uh, what kind of heals him towards the end. Like in, in some of the endings, there seems to be like this, this like bond between the two of them that, um, it kind of becomes less about a lot of the pain um, regarding his family and regarding war. And it's more about him stepping away from that um, and growing as a person. But then in Nier, it's like the opposite. It's like you become more violent because you care more about people and you would be willing to like put down your life for them. Um, and I think that that's where Yoko Taro drew that inspiration from 9-11 was um, there was a lot of people, you know, on all different ends of like the social political spectrum all over the world who were all coping with you know the news cycle and trying to understand what was happening and like who was at fault and um who deserves you know payback or who deserves to die and like everybody's like you know it's interesting hearing how he perceived it as somebody who's not living in america at the time because i grew up obviously like grew up in america during the events of 9-11 and the way that it was portrayed to a lot of us growing up was like, um, we had nothing to do with it. Like it was a totally unprompted attack that came out of nowhere. Um, and just like that really crazy religious people were, were targeting us. And like, that was it. That was what was communicated to us, um, when we were really little. So it's it's interesting to hear, I think it was really important for me to hear and like interesting for me to hear like outside perspectives as I was getting older and like learning about the conflict and, um, you know, going to school, so. 
yeah. video games. <laughs> <laughs> they can get heavy, especially when yeah. you've got these directors like Yoko Taro that have a lot to say about violence and humans. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, he gets into it. I Reincarnation's format, as much as I hate gotchas and I hate mobile games that are really grindy, um, his format for how the story is released in, in Replicant or sorry, in a reincarnation is like genius. Like each character having their own little like storybook or comic book. Um, it works really similar to the weapon system where like you read a, an item description or you read a weapon, but like imagine if you can visually see like a storybook play out in front of you as you're like reading about this person's experience. Um, oh, that sounds very nice. Yeah, and it's like as you level up this character, you get to revisit like the storybook or these memories that the character lived or experienced, and they are so beautiful. They're so beautiful because they're actually done in like a, and like a legit, like story. Let's yeah. It's interesting because like I feel like the Nox, like Nox Stella and Celia, like they're quite old, but um, it's really interesting because a lot of the design language of all of them is like quite modern. Um, so it can be confusing, I think, <laughs> to people. Like even even for myself, like I thought that you know maybe the Nox were way more modern because they have like Gothic style architecture, and then Celia um, has like terracotta roofs, and there's like a lot of kind of like architectural visual information that makes them seem like very recent. Um, but I think that that also is trying to communicate what ideas they're supposed to represent. So like Raya Lucaria has like a lot of the enlightenment period and like globes and early, you know, astronomy and all this other stuff. Um, but then there's all the like kind of, sorry, I'm like, <laughs> as I'm talking, I'm digging up that Celia sigil, but yeah, it's interesting. Oh, I found it. Yeah, it's like, you know, like Raya Lucaria's got like the Enlightenment college type vibe where it's got a lot of astrology, lots of books. Then you have like Celia with like you say the terracotta roofs. It looks older. I've always thought, I don't know if Greek's the right word for it or like Roman or whatever, but it feels like it's an older time period with less of that focus, but like it's more about so, wise men or something. So it's um, more, um, it's more Italian. It definitely has like some like the terracotta roofing comes from Korea, but um, in parts of Asia, but it was kind of moved over and utilized in in other uh, European kind of like countries. And I, I get the vibe of like more more like modern Italian architecture, which is like really bizarre. Um, also, I posted the the sigil in, in our chat. There's there's uh -huh. a lot there's a lot of really interesting stuff. I wouldn't say it's Greek though, um, although like obviously a lot of the West, a lot of a lot of uh, Europe was part of the Roman Empire. Um, yeah. Okay, I'm seeing so. the sigil now. So I see what you mean. It's got like the throne. The throne's very reminiscent of those ones that the big ladies in the oh, yeah. and cities the are on. There's a throne that's hidden in Celia. Oh yeah. So. Yeah, and then like in my throne... opinion. Oh, yeah, good. <laughs> you can oh, go. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Inside of inside <laughs> of the stone throne is the is Lasat's staff. Yeah. 
because like uh, Lucet was from Celia, it was his homeland, so he was probably born after the general migration, but still while they, while they held astrology practices, then he goes to Rayo Lucaria, then he comes back, and then like they uh, like they either imprison him after he does the whole like star skirt. So I guess I don't know. the The only reason they would imprison him is if you see his him glimpsing into the primeval currents as causing the attack of the stars on Celia that Radan defends against. Like, you know, like, he sees a great cluster break, and Radan has to def- defend against a bunch of stars, but, like, that's, uh, I don't know how well that theory is expe- accepted, so that's very, um, maybe, maybe not. But the other reason could be that they put him in the tunnel to hide him from the Carrion Witch Hunters. But, like, like you say, like they've got this throne in their city, and they've got these night sisters hiding out. So it's very likely that like Celia was definitely controlled by Noxtella. Like, well, they're it's made from um, Nox refugees after Estelle attacked. So they there's oh. like a couple of items that that reference that. I think I don't want to say it's Gowrie's dialogue. There's a lot of dialogue that references um, Celia utilizing night magic or also sorry celia utilizes night magic which is based off of estelle and based off the attack that estelle did um but presumably what i've kind of like picked up from like the cuckoo the cuckoo knights being present in noxtella and surrounding the black moon is that um yeah it is gazing into the primordial current um seems to be heretical and um selene flat out says that he was imprisoned so it seems like he was taken either he was arrested at Raya Lucaria and then taken back to Celia to to be imprisoned there um or he went back to Celia and got caught and then was in prison when he when he ended up in Celia so yeah I think uh I think based off of the dialogue with Selen it's that he was he got to he fled successfully from Raya Lucaria got to Celia, and then was caught, but, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah. But yeah, it's interesting, because Azur, you know, he's doing the same thing, but instead he he hid in a, um, in the hermit village, and if you, like, go and kind of hang out there and poke around, if you have, like, a stealth ability, or if you have, like, the, the camera mod that allows you to kind of float around, you can see that some of the errant scholars and, like, sorcerers that, like, went with Azur are teaching demi-humans. Like they're reading yeah. books to, to the demi humans that are around there. So he almost went kind of like a monk enlightenment path, where he decided to kind of, you know, screw off into the mountains and like teach people, which is interesting. How do you feel about the idea that he didn't willingly screw off into the mountains, since like the mountains he went to is like it's freaking Gelmir. It's this evil volcano land. I mean, not not evil at the time, but like even in the time, it would have been reviled because like. Rykard is he's you now he's the Prider Rykard, so he's got like this high ranking political position and he's a justicier with a lot of inquisitors under him. So like his entire volcano manor is sort of like a prison. And uh like I've I've always interpreted the Hermit Village as being like where they take some of the scholars that are arrested and they're like, Yeah, you live out your days in this hermit village, you know, like heretical beliefs. But like I it is on like you know, like they're not guarded or anything and it's on a side of the mountain that doesn't yeah. have so much of its power so it's I, not... I don't i don't yeah i don't think that they're connected to record in in many ways because i feel like if 
there's like this affinity with red glintstone that Rikard has, especially because there's a lot of like blood sacrifice that's happening in Rikard's whole situation. And they're kind of on the outskirts. It seems like there are a lot of soldiers that are from different factions that kind of hang out around the volcano because they either get intercepted or they can't find their way into the manor. This seems more like the scholars are willingly up there. I think also because of the archetype of the hermit, like the hermit tarot card. Um, it's like somebody who's willingly isolating themselves, which is okay. um, something we see quite a bit. There's like quite a lot of like ascetic monks and like Buddhist monk references in Miyazaki's games, like the way of the dragon being like a meditative pose and um, people isolating themselves in order to attain wisdom. That's something that happens in Miyazaki games. So I always assumed like the concept of the hermit village, like the name itself is, is, um, somebody who is choosing to live in isolation. Mm -hmm. That makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I can totally see him, you know, <laughs> them being, you know, I don't know. It just, I, I think I, it, it would be like a fascinating idea if they were, if they were held there by Rikard, um, in any way, but obviously there's not confirmation. A lot of it is us just like staring at, at the village and interpreting, but I think the fr the freedom that they have to be able to teach Debbie humans is like also really interesting to me. Um, but what else is there too is there's dead bodies of the celebrants of Dominula that are kind of scattered about the village, and it seemed like the demi humans um, and the uh, mages kind of like conquered that. Like it, it's or not that they conquered it over the celebrants of Dominula, but rather. They they won that battle, whatever it looked like. Whatever the battle looked like, they won it. <laughs> yeah. I never knew that about the corpses of the people from Dominula. Like, I'd picked up on, yeah. like, the whole alliance between sorcerers and uh, demi-humans, which sort of, like, matches this whole idea of giving up the elitist prestige of Rayo Lucaria, who sneered at demi-human yeah. mages and not going to, like, pick them, like, teach them in the mountains. Uh, like, there's even that, like, one Tuan sage guy that's, like... He's got like a bunch of people kneeled before him on front of the cliff. I always liked that part. Uh, yeah, yeah. But um, I didn't know about the celebrants. I because uh, like that would imply that they would, the people of Dominula were taken there at some point, or they went there, or like is it just the model being reused as this idea that they were all killed? And it's like why yeah, would so the sorcerers kill them then? Like it's it's a lot of dead models um, that you can go just like stare at, and it's not. You know, like, typically if they're going to reuse, like, a model for, like, just a dead body, they'll typically use a commoner. Yeah. Um, but in this case, it's specifically the Dominula celebrants that are, are kind of sprinkled around the hermit village, which is weird. Because, like, but... I've always seen Dominula... Like, I, I mean, like, I guess it makes sense if you see Rikard as an inquisitor, and the people of Dominula are, like, you know, like, I've always called it the Godskin heresy in my videos on my channel, because it's, like, they're following the Godskin apostle, they're helping it get skin yeah. for sacrifices, and they've, like, changed the whole religion about it, and they seem to defy Landol, so, like, but then for them to be, like, if they were to be punished for being heretical to the Golden Order, that'd have to happen at a point where Rikard was still peaceful with it. So, like, that's that's interesting. And were they just other parts of it that were in the Hermit Village? But then, like, with this... I mean, I guess God, I guess Rikard has the Goddesskin Noble, so maybe that was part of it? That's... I don't know. That yeah. raises so many questions. I, I definitely think that the um, Celebrants, they're, like 
more recent, particularly because um, they have the freedom to be able to practice like a heretical kind of like ritual. I, I talked about it um, in one of my lore shorts about the Maypole celebration. I didn't talk about the fact that it was like outlawed for a very brief period, but Rome actually outlawed um, the Maypole festival because of its association with the goddess Flora. Um, and there was like a lot of obviously like spiritual transition that was like occurring in Rome at the time. So it's interesting that we see this like Maypole celebration being celebrated effectively on Landell's doorstep because it's literally right up next to the gate. Um, yeah. It feels so like it has to be recent. Yeah, or, it's like a like, protest, kind of, with, like, the Godskin Apostle leading it. Um, and then, obviously, there's the Godskin Noble that's, like, in Reichardt's, um situation. But I, I kind of wonder if they're related. I think that they all of the Godskins have, like, the goal of, you know, either protecting artifacts of the Glomide Queen or finding their own way to, um, you know to pursue the death of the earth tree they're kind of going about it all in their own different ways yeah and the it seems like the god split yeah and it, it kind of seems like the godskin noble that's up with rykard in volcano manor sees the solution in rykard like sees the solution in the world serpent devouring the gods that's kind of like okay like this you know if i was if i was a godskin noble i'd be like okay this guy makes sense to me i'm gonna go help him <laughs> Um, but it, it definitely seems like the one that's on the Dominula when uh, the windmill area, that's where you get um, the incantation uh, fires deadly sin and you like see the flightless bird painting. Um, so part of me wonders if if that Godskin Noble's intentions were specifically to like retrieve fires deadly sin or burn the yard tree, maybe? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think the best interpretation I've come up with is that, like, the Godskin Apostle is, like, wise enough to know that there's a prophecy that the Erda Tree will be burnt when a tarnished hero tries to become Elden Lord. So it's, like, it's just waiting for that to happen. It knows yeah. that it's going to happen. So, like, all of the uh, celebrants are celebrating for, like, the meantime because it's, like, an yeah, endless yeah. festival rather than, like, this time of war because all they have to do is wait. So... Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of mystery stuff. I really like your interpretation of the Godskin Noble in the Temple of Egle. I've always like, I've always seen the Godskin Nobles as like the more ambitious side of the Godskin cult, who like did it oh, more yeah. so for the power of the Black Flame. So like in the modern sense, you know, you see the apostles as leading people, like adding new members to the cult. They're protecting ancient relics of the cult, like the Godskin Slayer's Great Sword. But then the nobles are like, they're working with the Carrion family because they're like, well, the Carrion families, the new rebels, will get more power. We'll be able to like keep up our whole, I don't know, rebellion yeah. vibe. <laughs> yeah, the nobles are definitely acting as like regents for sure, like in terms of decision making and like, like pursuing solutions. Um, the apostles definitely are like gathering followers and like preaching. They usually have their little cults. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of the Godskin duo found at Faramazula? I've always liked to assume, I mean, like, it's definitely a reach on my part, but, like, I've always liked to assume that if Merica was the Glomide Queen, 
then she could have instructed the duo to protect Faramazula, since that's where Malekith would be with Dustin to death, should anyone ever try to challenge him for it. But there's like a lot of complications that can definitely naysay that theory. But I'm just interested yeah. in what you think of the duo. The duo, yeah, I, I definitely wonder about them, because obviously there's a lot of different factions that are on Faramazula, and I kind of wonder if some of them were simply left there from when Faramazula was active, because it's a giant floating mausoleum, and it's where Dust and Death used to be housed before Malekith had it. Um, obviously, like, when you use the Giant's Forge, it, like, teleports you to Faramazula, which is, like, a floating mausoleum beyond time. So there's this... There's this... um, And then also the twin death birds being present um, all over like the statues in Faramazula too. Like there, there's like wall murals of twin death birds. Um, huh. I always thought those were dragons, but death birds makes a lot of sense. Yeah, they're, they have feathers and they have beaks. Okay. Um, but I can like also pull up a picture of that one. <laughs> yes, uh, I read, once I again, read. YouTube viewers will see this on screen. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, ooh, I have it. I actually just put it in a video recently, so <laughs> I know I have it like readily available. Here we go. So, um, yeah, there's there's these birds that are on the side of a lot of the churches and kind of like buildings in Ferrum. Here you go. Yeah, and like Ferrum even has, uh, if you look in the concept art, it's got like this really cursed image of bipedal Malekith. And Ferramazula yeah. has a lot of statues of that concept art, which makes it possible to imply that like maybe the beast clergymen, there were a lot of them, and they were all associated with Destined to Death, since they all share that same sort of um, necklace implying penance. But like, I feel like there's a lot, there's some amount of retooled concepts here because Malekith's very much his own unique character now, and I, I, it makes me wonder. I, I have so many thoughts over it. <laughs> yeah. Also, I sent you the uh, the birds. Oh, those are totally birds. Holy shit! I yeah. have never looked close enough at that. I was like, that looks like two heads going up. There's a bunch of yeah. dragons here, but like, no, yeah, you can totally see the feathers, the beak. Yeah, yeah those are the the. The kite birds, the sorry, the um, the twin bird kite shield that talks about the envoy of a Dust mysterious and Death. outer. God. It's like a mysterious outer god, but like it's it's almost certainly the Glomide Queen who was probably the god of death because like the twin bird gives birth to the death rate birds. So like I feel like if it's giving birth to things that oversee death, and the Glomide Queen holds the rune of death, it sort of would be her envoy. I feel like, but. Yeah. It, it's not confirmed, I think. Um, I I was actually talking about this with my community recently because we were talking about is Marika the Glomide Queen. We were kind of going through everything, and um, obviously, like the Great Rune of Dust and Death is the mirrored rune of Marika's rune. It's like inverted. So Marika's is the crucifix, but it is like dipping downward, like her arms yeah. when they're outstretched is dipping downward, whereas like the Rune of Dust and Death is dipping upward, kind of. Like the the center of it is is pulled upwards, and the two um, arms of it are pulled downwards. So it's like that motion of it is opposite. So um, there's this idea of like mirrored runes. There's also the rune of Freya, um, or 
um, sorry. The rune of Freya? There's um, this rune in Norse mythology that is both life and death combined that turns into a tree. Um, oh, is it like a Fusak rune? Hold on one sec. I've I've talked about it on a video before, and like I try to keep it. I try to keep it. I keep that thing on me. I keep the runes in my pocket for whenever I have conversations like this. But is it the um, uh, Alkies Elhas? Uh, I know it's. I think I want to say it's called like the Wendell Horn or something, but I'm probably totally off. <laughs> Hold okay. on. I got it. I got you. I got you. I got you. I got you. So here's this post. YouTube video is going to be popping off with so many images. <laughs> so there's um, life, beginning, death, and and war, which is your um, yeah, all and these are, and I'll have. Okay. And then there's the uh, I don't even know if this is right. Yes, I remember. Oh my god, my brain worked. It's Wendahorn is the is the rune, um, and it became associated later. This is more of like a um, modern take on the union of of life and death, but it. Um, is supposed to represent is it like you combine okay yeah that's what i was imagining because even yeah, from the yeah. beginning all is always was like it was life and it was death and then you had like obviously like yeah this interpretation of just combining both runes to make one thing and i think that's definitely mm -hmm. present and intended with the elden ring like uh the fact that they're inverted i um yeah, I'm 100% with you right now. I, um, okay. Like, okay, like they've okay. always they've already used Futhark runes, like the Titanite slab all the way back in Dark yeah. Souls 1 had the entire intro cutscene written out in symbolic Futhark, which is like, okay, what the fuck, FromSoft? But like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, FromSoft is wild with ancient languages. There was also like the, the Chinese community that found the Yi alphabet in the game, which is like... Uh, fucking, it's like almost extinct. There's only like a few people left that still read it and speak it. That's awesome. And, uh, Where does it come up? That's, it uh... comes up all, so in the letters that are sent between all of the different merchant caravans, like any of the notes that you can buy, um, the alphabet is written in like kind of like in the scrolls. Um, but then the old version of the map that used to have like the sea creatures on it, there was Yi alphabet that was present um, all over it. This was like old, old version of the map. Um, I want to say it was, I don't know if it was like something that they got during the network test. Um, yeah, that's incredible. That's like, that's awesome. I really love how they, uh, how they deal with old languages like that. Um, yeah. And it was, it was pretty cool too, because, uh, the Chinese community members who there's one person in particular, I can link their video translated everything and it was first written you know it's written out in yi dialect but it was first written in japanese so you have to use the yi dialect to enunciate things that are japanese words so it's like <laughs> this like cr content creator was like effectively overlapping or trying to communicate through two to three different languages because i don't even know what they spoke like if they were speaking mandarin or what um so they were having to like pretty much jump through hoops to be able to decipher what was even being said. And uh, the translations are really funny. <laughs> they <laughs> got like a bunch of motorcycle brand names uh, popping up. People would just like write out their favorite like bikes. There is a little note naming somebody's cat, I think, at one point. Um, but it 
it definitely makes sense because a lot of it was just placeholder nonsense. Like a lot of it was just, you know, them messing around with the map because that was when there were also, like I mentioned, sea monsters that were kind of like littered around the map. And a lot of those sea monsters were not art assets that they um, drew themselves. It was just like straight up taken from historical art and just like copy pasted into their their map. <laughs> That's um, fantastic. Yeah, it was it was hilarious and um I kind of wish they kept some of those things in there, not necessarily like the the ripped art, but the uh the little notes to people's cats and and motorcycles and stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely funny. cute. Like it's got a yeah. vibe to it. At least we get yeah. those two dudes in the boat that keep popping up. Mhm. Yeah. <laughs> I always say that those are Rodrigo's dads. <laughs> <laughs> All of her dads just coming together. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Hopefully they don't end up at Stormvale too until after the plate is done with it. <laughs> yeah, right. I'll I'll send you the the video on the Yi alphabet. It's really fascinating. It's like one of my favorite community efforts. Um, yeah, that sounds so complex. I'd love to see it. I'll definitely link it below too. Like that's uh that's fascinating to consider. Yeah. We'll be right back after these messages. In this episode, we go over lots of different content and mention quite a few content creators. So here's a formal shout out to Saint Trina, Vadividia, Epic Name Bro, a German spy, and all the others I can't name uh, so concisely. Y'all make fantastic content, Quayleg included, and form a solid cornerstone to the Souls community and its many diverse theories and approaches to playing these games. I'd also like to shout out the great data miners and short form analysis done by Sekiro Duby and Zuli the Witch and Banfire Vien. Without all of them, we wouldn't know nearly as much about the cut content of these games, which at least for me is a huge appeal to the online discussion about from software content. And finally, here's a word from our sponsor. Do you often lose your battles? Have your cult followers abandoned your ways? Does your sword feel dull and without edge? Well, perhaps you've lost favor with the All-Father. With the Olden... <laughs> with the Odin cult, you won't suffer from such plagues. We've revolutionized the cutting-edge process of blood sacrifice. We advocate for both the slaughter of animals and humans. All for the glory of the High One. We recommend starting with a minor bloat, or blood sacrifice, where you hang nine types of beasts from a yew tree in recognition of the Allfather's sacrifice for knowledge. Good hunting out there, and remember, hail Odin and hail Heimdall. Uh, while you look into the link, if you are doing so, um, do you have any like favorite sort of motif or theme that you see in the series? Like, you know, you've played all the way since Demon Souls, and you've been around for like a lot of retooling of tropes. Like, there's been how many wizard academies that are referenced yeah. or found? <laughs> Yeah, I've talked about um, a lot of them in the past because a lot of my videos actually go more into um, like the content that I do looks more at like artistic visual language as opposed to like, I mean, I, I, I have like a whole mind map and a whole timeline um, that has like every item description just like copy, copy pasted into the into the timeline and, and organized and everything like I, I obviously am aware of like the in-game text lore um but my community particularly likes to look at artistic symbolism and like historical symbolism and 
uh, Miyazaki's design language from Demon Souls all the way into Elden Ring. Um, that's kind of like the the bulk of what I like to of like my content creation creation. It's less about I, I definitely think that there's you know content creators like Fati um and other people that are are really dedicated to understanding what is like actually happening in the game. And I feel like that's so important because obviously you don't want to jump to conclusions about historical context um without understanding what's actually happening in the game first. Um because there's like some weird disconnect that can happen. Um and I can get into that too. That's like a whole other a whole other thing. We actually went on like a tangent about it on stream yesterday. Or the day I'd before be yesterday. To hear about it, because like there's this entire idea of them drawing this vast amount of inspiration from a, like a bunch of different sources, from like very like early human mythology to history to uh, religion to just like modern television shows that they like. You know, Berserk yeah. has a bunch of influence, yeah. and then like they take it and they make it so much their own that like it has its own context. So you can only yeah. take this interpretation of like knowing what it's based off of so far before you're like, exactly. okay, I'm going to switch gears. And I go. have to balance. It's like a balancing act. You really have to be careful because it's like, yeah, Miyazaki could be using art assets and like historical, um, like uh, one of our favorite, the, my community's favorite ones that we talk about a lot is Radagat and Marika and their relationship to the Loki and Odin archetype. Um, we talk about we talk about that a lot. We talk about how all of Radagon's kids are conveniently resembling Loki's kids in a lot of ways, where there's like a wolf, a snake, a half dead person. You know, like there's yeah. there's all these different images going on, and then also. Loki was accidentally depicted with red hair by a historian um, who conflated Loki and the fire giant Logi. So there's like a lot of really cool historical and mythological things that line up with, um, you know, Radagon has a statue of himself in Liernia of him with like blonde hair. So it's oh, like. Oh, really? Where's the statue? Yeah, it's in Bellum, the Bellum Church. Um, oh. If you. The statue isn't painted. Like the skin isn't painted, um, but the hair is painted like a very light blonde, which is like interesting. That is <laughs> because I don't know if he did that and he always had red hair and he was just trying to hide it, or if there was a point in which he had blonde hair. Um, yeah, and I mean, if you look at it from the Merica to Radigan angle, like the boss fight literally shows like Merica is Merica until the hair turns from blonde to red and then the it's Radigan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like Logi and Loki have this similar thing where it was believed that he was depicted with blonde hair in some legends or, you know, darker hair or maybe red hair. So there's this like, you're kind of looking at, at history and like verbal storytelling or like um, oral tradition and you're seeing it being written down by people who don't understand the material and it's just getting like messed up in the process. And it's super funny um, to see kind of just how vague and ambiguous a lot of the gods and demigods are in Elden Ring. I I I think that like when I talk to my community about the Soul series, we try to keep everything as like open as possible. There are some things where I'm like, well, I really think it's this, but for the most part, we try to keep it open because a lot of Western tradition and Western folklore and storytelling is just like so incredibly open and has gone through so much and Miyazaki talked about his own relationship with mythology growing up in like old literature and kind of filling in the blanks as you go along um 
like if there's like translation errors or if there were things that he just didn't understand culturally, you just kind of like do your best to use your own biases to fill in the blanks, you know, your own cult- cultural biases, your own um, personal experiences. So there's a lot of that with Radagon that we love. Um, as far as my favorite like trope or archetype that keeps repeating in Miyazaki's world, um, I love Renala because like moon magic, uh, so there's the dark moon magic. And I, I've talked about this with um, St. Trina and some other um, content creators in my community um, and also that have their own communities too, because they're they're awesome. They're amazing. Go check out their work. Um, but Dark Moon and Dark Souls is like typically associated with femininity, and like Godwin, um, you know, was raised female because of their affinity with the Dark Moon and like this like moon magic, dark moon magic. But full moon magic is like a very like mass traditionally like masculine practice where you have sage freak you have um big hat logan you have you have like all these kind of like male guys who are like yeah i know what i'm about (laughs) you know like i know what i'm talking about i know everything and they usually have a tragic ending um because the knowledge that they're pursuing is something that um consumes them or causes them to go hollow or causes them to go insane um But then Renala is unique in that she's kind of like the first representative of the full moon who is like super, super feminine. Oh, and also Seath the Scaleless too is another one. Um, So you you have like this trend, like kind of this like same imagery that we're used to seeing, but it's portrayed in a different way. And she kind of like goes crazy, not because of like this pursuit of knowledge, but it seems like this fixation with uh, rebirth magic and there's kind of like a lot of subtext there about you know whether or not she was able to conceive and all this other stuff um just like this fascination that she has with birth that consumes her as opposed to pursuit of knowledge um or like motherhood consuming her as opposed to pursuit of knowledge um so it's that's really cool i find that super interesting to see him like flip his own language on its head um but as far as like my favorite the one that i think i personally resonate with obviously quite log i love the chaos witches in all of miyazaki's games i love pyromancies um i love that the fire and like the chaos um kind of affinities associated with that there's also a degree of femininity associated with that as well um, and yeah, a lot like an of inner fire that gives life to more new beings. Yeah, yeah. But it's also associated with um, entropy and with death. So a lot of like energy batteries for pyromancies are typically swamps where there's a lot of decay and entropy and the transition of heat from one life into another um, that's being channeled in like these locations. Um, I love that world building. It's like so cool. It's such a cool idea. Um, uh Laurentius too being kind of like a male or like masculine kind of like representative of that group as well he talks about how um a lot of pyromancy's like intuitive feeling or like emotion and he's very he's a very emotional npc he's like one of the npcs that i felt very connected with i think um which is very rare in miyazaki games cuz a lot of like npcs are supposed to embody traditions or time periods or like it's very rare that we really get into like the heart or the emotion of an npc a lot of a lot of people complain that they feel 
very stoic a lot of the time. But I, I think it's just because of the style of writing that Miyazaki does. He writes not to create like relatable characters, but to create like a like a feeling, like a yeah. Like a myth, you're watching someone's you know? story play out, and you're getting a feeling from that story, whether it's like tragedy yeah. or vengeance or whatever. They're like a vessel for it. But then Laurentius and like a couple other characters, like Roderica to some extent, yeah. and Elden Ring are like very much like there's like a camaraderie they form first. Like With they you. talk to you, yeah. and like they have a lot more like. Their dialogue's not praying or like talking to Merica or like talking about how they want to go exact revenge or like you know it's it's yeah uh, exactly exactly yeah. exactly yeah so I love Laurentius um, there's obviously like always you know male female or um, kind of like gender fluid people that are representative of certain concepts and Saint Trina was looking into Saint Trina and um, Jean look into kind of like which concepts are um, kind of like not ruled, but like are represented through certain NPCs, like which NPCs are more, you know, on the feminine end of the spectrum and what affinities do they represent? Um, that's kind of like their, they were working on like a big mind map that was really awesome. That was looking into color and elements and all that other stuff of Miyazaki's design language. And um, yeah, I, it's super fascinating and I love I love the that chaos is kind of like this intuitive kind of feeling. Yeah. Um, magic uh, of, of death into life. I think that's my that's my vibe. That's my jam. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very cool vibe. Like I, I especially like how in Dark Souls one it went from like in the very ancient days of Pyromancy it was done with staves and you've got like this idea of the ancient demon fire sage. And then after like after the witch kindles it into a fire of life, it becomes that like intuitive energy, and that's where you get like the holding fire in your own hands and stuff. And like, th there's something that's very appealing. Like, I get where you're coming from. It's like a, it's like a very interesting form of magic. I think that's part of why I really like the pyromancies in Elden Ring. Like, um, they're very much like they have emotions tied to them. I feel like, and mm -hmm. that sort of that's reminiscent of what you talk about. Yeah, and they're super. Some of them are super mysterious in that they don't even uh, cast a sigil when you cast them; they just happen, which is like wild. Because so many of the other schools of magic require you to use like a rune or a sigil to be able to use them. Um, we're currently doing like a challenge run right now that's like an ancestral follower character where I can't use any letters or I can't use any metal because that's like those are the two things that they can't that they don't engage with and we were like racking our brains um in the stream chat trying to figure out like okay what magic can I use that doesn't have like runes or symbols associated with it and I always thought that maybe you know like oh it's fire magic so I would cast the fire giant or the fire magic sigil when I'm using it but catch flame and some of the other ones that are associated with death don't have a sigil, which I was like, what? That's so that's so weird. That's so bizarre. Um, yeah, because written language is so important to the series. That's really fascinating. I never picked up on that detail, but it makes sense. Like, I, I love how you discovered that during like a like a, a uh, challenge yeah. run. Yeah, like you eschew yeah. runes and smithing, and then you figure out this big thing. That's so cool. If I had to guess, yeah. I'd be like, the fires of life represent your vigor, so everyone has vigor inside of them that can turn into flame. But like, exactly, yeah, yeah that's, that's so what cool. I was thinking too. I uh, was thinking it's that 
that fire energy, the entropy. Like you're emitting heat and you're like releasing it. Yeah, you're channeling it. And then it's like it burns you too, a lot of the spells, like in the lore. Mm -hmm. So it's like, that makes it doubly interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's super fascinating. And just treading back a little, uh, so it's not released as of recording, but it will be released as of this episode releasing. But I actually interviewed Saint Trina about her Miro board um, that goes yeah. over all of the uh, gender stuff, which is super cool. It's um, definitely, I would recommend checking that out to anyone. It's like, it's actually how I met her on Twitter, and it's just a super cool breakdown in general. I really like how much attention to detail it has. The color theory thing is like, it astounds me. Like, I am not a very visually oriented person during interpretation, but even I was able to, like, catch on to, like, you know, obviously, like, inner order and gold and red and outer order and silver and blue. And, like, it goes so much more in depth than I ever realized when I saw people talking about it online. It's actually incredible. Yeah, it's... I love it so much. And um, it lends itself so much to because I, I used I used to work in the game industry as of November. I had worked in the game industry for four years. Um and like so much of game design is like trying to teach the player. But like good game design is trying to teach the player through ways that don't feel invasive, like pop-ups or aggressive tutorials or things that make you break your immersion um or take you out of the game. I, I feel like <laughs> Um, Pokemon games are like the the worst in this because I just want to go. Like I've been playing these, you know, obviously as like a veteran player, you've been playing something for like, you know, 20 some years. Like you just want to go. Um, but in a lot of Pokemon games, you really have to do the same song and dance every single time. So it's like trying to find a balance between pleasing your veteran players that know what they're doing, but also really like guiding new players in a way that um, doesn't leave them feeling abandoned. There's there's definitely this balance as a developer that's like super super important, um, and I feel like using color, using very specific visual design language can like help teach people in like a subversive way. But yeah, like there's a there's a lot of color and like shapes and imagery that helps teach people pattern association um, and like certain patterns and how they relate to like your game theory like or your game's language. So for example, if I think of green and I think of turtles, my brain is like, ooh, this means like better stamina. Like I get more stamina from using, using items that are associated with turtles or associated with the color green. Um, so anytime that I pick up an item, I don't need to read about it. I just know. I just know that it's green and that it'll make my endurance go faster. <laughs> Um, so it's, it's a neat little trick for designers out there, for developers out there. Use, use your visual language. It's really helpful. Yeah, for real. It's, uh, it's very important to like make a visual aesthetic. Um, I feel like Dark Souls and FromSoft in general has been very good at doing that tutorial by not being a tutorial mode. Like a lot of the early levels in almost every game will teach you a lot about how to treat enemy encounters. Like they'll have a mismatch of like group fights or if, like moments where something sneaks up behind you and it's all designed to teach you how to explore a level. And then later on you get the more complex, like, oh, this enemy is sort of strong and you have to like find a way to get around it in particular. So like 
I think that's very cool how they do it as like a game developer in general. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you've made a lot of Elden Ring theories so far. Uh, do you have any like that like have stuck in your mind even after making them? Like that have just kept like you keep going back to in concept? Uh, yeah, um, I definitely think that the Snowy Crone is like I guess like a character or a theory that I am really like excited about. <laughs> very passionate about that one. Um, I think because that's an instance where, you know, mythology has really helped us, like, get an understanding, or I guess, like, my community feel like we have this understanding of uh, that character's kind of, like, lore and vibe simply based off of the, the historical and mythological implications of that being, that entity, the Snowy Crown. Because um, she appears in Celtic mythology, she appears in Scandinavian myth um, and folklore. Um, she kind of appears all over Europe, so it's interesting that we we hear of her in, in association with Ronnie and Rena. Um, I'm definitely in the camp of just calling the Snowy Crone Rena, um, but there there are a lot of people that are really like against that. They really want to see Rena as like Ronnie's alter identity. Um, but yeah, I I just think. You know, I just call her Rena for short, just because you find the Snowy Crone's garb in Rena's Rise. Rena's Rise, yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you like, um, oh, go on, go on, you can finish. Oh no, <laughs> um, I was just gonna say, I there's there's a lot of subtext with her being associated with the three wolves that um, were able to summon the spirits calling bell, um, and and just like the spirit callers in general. That I'm, I have like a whole tinfoil hat theory about but sorry you go you go <laughs> <laughs> i'd be interested to hear it once i'm done but like yeah rena's definitely caught my eye a lot too and i totally think that the snowy crown is like thought to be rena i mean like unless i get like some sort of confirmation otherwise it's gonna stay in my head like that just because you find you know like you find the you find this the armor set in rena's rise and then there's this like idea of the maiden the uh the mother and the crone that's very common as a motif so ronnie Renala, and rena would all fit that and then you have that repeated with this idea that like they represent all different facets of the same person in certain ways and like like you know like that you you mentioned it like there's this theory that like rena is part of ronnie like an alter ego but then like if you look at Renala's name Renala's name has rena in it so you know, the snowy crone and teaching them could have imparted part of her personality into them. And, like, if you want to, you, that could be benign or it could be malign. Because, like, is that good that she's in their personality or is it bad? Like, Ronnie has her doll modeled after the crone's body for some reason. Like, there's so many, there's so many mysteries. Yeah. Um, with the, it's funny because I actually just like linked the thread that, um, is kind of like the tinfoil hat theory. So I know that a lot of people think, because like Mel Melina is obviously the number one like dust and death fangirl. Like she's the number one candidate for being the Glomide Queen, obviously, because her ending, she has like the Glom eye. And the entire course of her questline, she just keeps saying dust and death over and over and over again. Like that's all she cares about mm -hmm. <laughs> is, is dust and death. Um, and you know, there's this relationship that she elaborates on in regard to 
you know, life and its relationship with dust and death, how dust and death is important because it allows for death and discriminant between the gods and the rest of, um, you know, mortality. So it kind of allows this idea of like death leads into new births. And so the cycle of life continues and that's very important to her as a character. Um, but the, uh, kind of the, the whole thing that I started to break down is, and this is, this is where it gets kind of like weird in, in my head, I think, because, um, like I mentioned with Queen Marika and Radagon being very similar to Loki in, um, Nordic folklore is that Marika also has elements of Freya being like a goddess of gold and like fertility or like Frigg. I know that those two can be conflated a lot um, or are used interchangeably a lot. Um, but there's this like idea of abundance, birthing, life, gold, um, which is in Norse mythology. So there's like multiple different gods that, you know, that uh, Marika and Radagon are embodying. But then also Marika and Marika's source seal can be found in one of the river wells. And there's this myth of Odin spearing himself to a tree, um, which like Godfrey also does in the introduction. And it's like depicting the hanged man or like a man who's like um, kind of like hanging to interpret wisdom or to like reflect. And Marika throws her eye into the well. Um, and Odin does this in Nordic mythology to understand um, the oracles who live at the base of the wall because the oracles are women. They have like intuitive knowledge according to like Norse mythology. Um, and so yeah, Odin is effectively, yeah, yeah. Odin's effectively like learning from them through reflection by pinning himself to the tree. He's like trying to understand the kind of like different aspects of humanity and, you know, different you know, gender expression, he's like kind of going through this whole period of self-reflection and, and assessment. And Marika is doing that too. So we have a single entity that like is pulling from a bunch of different myths of a bunch of a bunch of different gods. Um I've also heard people say uh that Godfrey's, you know, pulling a lot from Odin, but also from uh Kukulin and like Kuhala. a bunch of others. Yeah, a bunch of other Celtic myths. So we have we have a lot, you know. There's a singular character that can be elements of like three or four different gods, or there can be this imagery of the hanged man of Odin between two different characters, between Marika and between Godfrey. So we have like a lot of symbolism that's being reused and shared. So, um, you know, the snowy crone in Celtic myth is this, um, you know, woman that's associated with the moon um, and the snow and our relationship for winter. Like, because whenever the winter solstice happens, obviously it gets darker earlier and it gets darker for longer periods of time. So that's when that she gets to kind of come out and, you know, do do her thing. But it's also when the veil between the waking world and um, the spirit world becomes very thin. And so that's why during, like, the winter period, there are common, commonly, like, in Europe, um, not so much in America, which is weird. We don't tell as many ghost stories during this time in America, but I know in Europe there's a lot more ghost stories. We have uh, Scrooge, and that's literally it. <laughs> but <laughs> um, you know, there's like this this subtext of the spirits visiting us during the winter time. Um, that's pretty commonplace. And so we we see that in Elden Ring. 
when we go to the Forbidden Lands in a in a snowy area, we see spirits walking around, spirits of animals, spirits of the trees. We see like a lot of different. We see that veil become very thin. Um, but the snowy crone is also typically accompanied by like wolves, by three wolves. So it's really interesting that we get, you know, we get Torrent from Melina, but we get the spirit calling bell from from Ronnie, whose mentor was the snowy crone. Um, and the spirit calling bell has the three wolves. That's kind of like the first summon that we get in the game. Um, so there's this weird relationship with, um, you know, Ronnie, Melina, and the snowy crone that keeps like kind of popping up whenever I like do any kind of lore deep dive on, on like any affinity. Melina and Ronnie and the snowy crone always pop up again. Like, I tried to do a Fire Monk video the other day, and I end up talking about Melina's Blade of Calling in it. Um, <laughs> it's it's super fascinating to see them, like, pop up in almost everything that, they, that I'm working sense. on. They sort of embody, mm -hmm. like, the two major dichotomies. Like, I mean, not dichotomy. I mean, sort of. Like, I mean, I've always seen it as, like, you know, you've got outer order and you've got inner order. And outer order is, like, causality. It's stuff that the greater will can't control through its own powers of fate and stuff that can possibly threaten it. And, like, Rani is all about that. You know, she represents the spirit self. She represents uh, the eventual destruction of the greater will through the dark path of the Empyrean. She represents, like, the snowy, the snowy cold of the dark moon. And then you've got Merrick, not Merica, but you've got Melina, who is like very much this person who represents fire, and she represents the ability for the earth tree to burn. And like you know, inner order is all about like the fiery inner aspects of people, the vigor, the fire of life, and everything. So like, I, I, it's funny that you always go back to those pair, that pair, because like there's some of the they're like the two most important NPCs of the game, like even right down to them being like both sort of heirs to Merica in some sort of twisted way where Rani has to destroy her flesh to avoid Merica's fate and yeah. uh, like circumvent it with her own knowledge. And then Melina is someone that like was probably an Empyrean if she was Merica and Radigan's daughter. So if she's an Empyrean, then she was burned and bodiless to make it so she couldn't take Merica's fate. It's like fascinating. Yeah, there's also, I'm definitely more on the the side of things where I definitely think she was the Glomide Queen, or if she is Marika, she's the aspect of Marika that was the Glomide Queen. Um, I, I think Melina's, you know, being burned and bodiless has a lot to do with uh, the Black Blade of Death. And up until Rani steals away a piece of it to destroy her own flesh, the only person that has it is Malekath. Mm -hmm. Malekath is the only person that has the ability to to do that. So um, the idea that, you know, Malekith was somehow involved with Melina's, like, physical body being gone. And then there's also the um, dialogue with Bach where he, he's talking and Melina overhears it and she's like, what is a mother? I don't know. <laughs> you know, she's <laughs> like, I don't even know what a mom is. And uh, it makes me wonder if, like, Marika's birthing of Melina wasn't necessarily like a traditional birth, but rather summoning a remembrance of somebody who had been sealed away. And that was her birthing, Melina. Um, I think it lends itself to, you know, the big identity reveal at the end where her hair turns darker and she gets her glow my instead of like her traditional Marika Radagon, you know, strawberry blonde hair with like the golden eyes. That goes away. Um, 
and it's replaced with like a different kind of like visual identity. So I, a part of me wonders if like, yeah, Melon is probably the glomide queen who was once defeated by Malaketh, as we know, and maybe sealed into the Erd tree. And that's why she was born and re-released into the world. Um, but as far as like how that relates to the snowy crone, I don't know. Um, cause it could be that they, it could be that the snowy crone and the glomide queen share the same mythology, right? Similar to how Godfrey and Marka share the same mythology. Um, they share the mythology of Odin with, with the hanged man and their eyes, you know, popping out or whatever. <laughs> but, um, it could be that Melina and the snowy crone share that, that, um, Sawain share that, uh, that Celtic mythology. Um, I also sent you a picture too of, um, the statue that's on Faramazula. I used to think it was Marika. Um, I still am like open it to it being Marika. I kind of wonder about it. Um, but she's surrounded by three wolves again, which oh, is like, oh yeah, because the triple wolf symbolism. Yeah, yeah, which is like the the three wolves that the snowy crone is presumably summoned. Any, uh, is the three wolf mythology related in any way to the Mora again? I know that like her aspects are like the raven, the crow, and the wolf, or something like that. But like, with I, I'm mm -hmm. just wondering if it if it connects at all with the Irish influences on the game, and if you know yeah, about so... that. So I definitely think that, so the three wolves, like I was mentioning, they're related to the, I, I think it may be um, Celtic mythology where the three wolves are in associated with the snowy crone, but I think it could, I'm trying to remember in what aspect, or like, sorry, what myth it is, but the snowy crone does have three wolves specifically like that number and a yeah. particular cultural variation, but she has so many iterations between a bunch of different cultures that I'm like struggling to remember which one. Um, that's really fascinating, though. I've always looked at that that uh, statue in Fera Missoula as being Merica being adopted into like a foster relationship with the old dynasty and the beastmen of Fera Missoula. But like, like I never picked up on the whole three wolf part of it, you know, and like the whole three wolves spirit calling uh, summon spirit ash. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the statue. Like, do you think that could be the crown then in a younger stage if it has the three wolves, or do you think it's uh like if you don't think it's Merica anymore? So it could be Merica, and it could be that you know, like I was saying, I'm open to the glomide queen or the snowy crone being like if Merica was like a denzian of both life and death, if she was like a singular entity that embodied both and she killed an aspect of herself to circumvent death, either because of fear or because of like the needed sacrifice. Because in in you know ancestral followers, we see it with Mikola with this like revival of ancient practices, there's always like a ruler that seems to be turning into a tree or like sacrificing himself to become a tree. So it seemed like there was some kind of like need to sacrifice oneself for her age to bloom and then also for her age to come to an end. And I think that there's this like fear that she has around death. And it definitely seems like she's using the pots of dead warriors from Colosseums to act as fertilizer for a lot of the trees. If you see like the minor earth trees are surrounded by pots. Um, I've always kind of like wondered if the whole purpose of her sealing away dust and death is to avoid her fate, similar to like Gwyn in the Dark Soul series. Um, obviously, a lot of that is like circumstantial. There's like some in-game lore text that 
talks about it. Like all of Malaketh's storyline and them sealing away death is a big part of it. But um, seeing her solution for making the earth tree like immortal was like a big, a big tell for me of like, okay, she's definitely trying to avoid death. She's trying to like create her own age. She's searching the depths of the golden order to see in what ways she can like manipulate it. And then there's certainly like a point in her storyline where she shatters the ring and she, she kind of is like at odds with her own intentions. Like that's why there's this conflict between her and Radagon. It's like, there's this part of her that wants to keep the age eternal and to like stay true to the golden order. And then there's this piece of her that maybe there's some regret or there's some, you know, ulterior motive that's going on internally of like, I got to get out of what I just did, <laughs> you know? Um, but we, I don't know. And I'm, I'm curious to see if the DLC will go into like her actual intentions at any point. But, um, I do think that like the, you know, like the Glomide Queen could have been this piece of her that she hated that she sealed away, which is why we only see one child in Ferrum. Or it could be that there was a kingdom of light or like the sun realm, for example. And then there could be Ferrum Azula um, or they could be one in the same or they could be separate. But um, it's interesting to me that there's just like the the one child I wonder if there is like another statue somewhere with like a second child, if they're twins because they have like twin runes or Marika could just be the Wendahorn where she's like both runes combined and that could have been her, her rune. Um, but like, I don't know. I like the way that my brain works. I like to believe that they are two separate entities because I like more characters. <laughs> <laughs> like I like the idea of having more characters. I like the idea of the snowy crone or Melina, or whoever being their own things. But at the same time, like, a lot of Elden Ring's um, mythology is centered around, like, these divisions and labels of concepts and how they actually all really just came from one source and one place. Um, and then they, like, broke down kind of into, like, their own individual concepts. Or their yeah. own individual like shards. I, I definitely see it as like the roots of a tree or like the branches or twigs of a tree. It's like it all comes from the same like trunk or like the same like singular tree, but it's like branching out into like individual characters and relationships and concepts. I yeah. think that because we're we're so far in the future. We're so far in the in the game's future that like we're kind of at the tips of the roots. And so a lot of the information is presented to us in very segmented ways. Like this person is this person, this person is this person, but there is a likelihood that they're all the same person. Um, there is a likelihood that they're mirrored. There's like mirrored aspects of the self that are technically the same character. But um, I think this is what makes me so excited about the DLC is that we, if we go into the past, we might get answers for those relationships. But as it stands right now, I tend to keep it pretty open. <laughs> I tend yeah. to I tend to be very um ambivalent with like my theories, I think. But I like the idea of uh of the snowy crone just by herself. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense to me. And that's totally valid to have like a preference towards more characters, like in within your own yeah. personal storytelling experience. Um I think that I was very draw. Well Huh? Like, I just want to draw them. So, like, if they're all just Marika, it's going to be a bummer because I don't want to draw Marika. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> or like, like cosplayers, like people that it's like you really attach yourself to like one character because you see them in yourself a lot, or you love their design philosophy, or you love the art of them. So, like, 
yeah, but, um, you know, this idea of them all being Marika, like, I see it. I feel it. <laughs> I know it's there, but I, I do not want to see it. <laughs> yeah. I do not want to. I get it. I think, um, for me, I've always thought of Marika as solely, like, if she were to be anyone, she'd be the Glamide Queen. I get, like, the Melana thing with it echoing Melania a lot. Uh, and Melania being, like, another daughter of Merica's that can, like, help tell her story. But I always, I don't know, for me, it's always, it hits better in my in my mind if I imagine Melana not as always, have, like, always been the Glomide Queen, but as someone who's taking up the mantle su to succeed her mother. I don't know, I really, like, like, the game's all about heirs, and, like, worthy heirs, and I like this, I, like, this is, like, really sad idea that, like, destined to death is terrible to have and wield, but, like, you take up the mantle to achieve something. I don't know. That's uh Yeah, yeah. And it's not even a bad, you know, dust. I, I'm okay, so here's another thing. I'm number one gallery and rot defender. I'm out in the <laughs> trenches fighting for mushrooms every day of my life. Because and I'm blaming The Last of Us for this. And I'm blaming um Resident Evil 4 for this, even though I love those games. But uh in the West, mushrooms are seen as a bad scary dangerous thing that can cause like zombie mind control we love that we love that in storytelling in the west it's our favorite thing in the world we see rot as a spooky scary thing we don't like the idea of death we don't like the idea of decay it is bad um it means that you are sick and that you are not alive <laughs> but in eastern philosophy and mythology that's not always the case um and sometimes it's like linked with this idea of like immortality um or the spirit world. So it's, you know, it's interesting on one hand to see Dark Souls, which had mushroom people and had Elizabeth who were associated with like vitality and stamina and all these like positive things. And then we get, you know, Millennia and Rot and like the community does a backflip and they're just like, I hate mushrooms. Everything is a fungus and everything is going to kill me. And like, I'm just like, no, 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 I promise entropy is important. <laughs> I promise, I promise it's important to like, you know, decay is important to the forest and to forest life and to, uh, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm out there. I'm out there fighting for it. And I think that Melina having dust and death, you know, and her, her little kind of like feelings about how dust and death is important because it feeds new life and um, how the, you know, the way of the frenzied flame is not, you know, the path you want to go down because it, you don't get that cycle. It just like is like a hard reset. Um, I think is it's really interesting. Um, you know, if she is, if she is like traditionally Marika's daughter, that she's able to like pursue those aspects of life. Um, and I feel like Mikola is doing this as well. You know, Mikola starts off being a Golden Order fundamentalist, but then eventually is able to like confront those feelings and um there's like cut content with Mikola's dialogue that's like may all things flourish uh both graceful and malign which i think is like a really good line it is so, i've interpreted that so much i like it's a, it's a good line <laughs> yeah so it's like there's this uh idea with like a golden immortal eternal age with like no sickness and no death and no loss. Um, and that's very appealing. It's very appealing to the West, especially because of our belief systems and a lot of like our cultural norms of like heaven and purity and 
um, you know, immortality in heaven and, and all this other stuff. Like when we die, we go somewhere permanently and how we behave dictates where we go to permanently for the rest of our lives. It's not very fluid, um, like Western spirituality and symbolism, um, like current Western spirituality is, is not, you know, it's not as, uh, as fluid as, as other philosophies or spiritualities. So it's, it's interesting to see this take on, you know, the West through like a Japanese lens of Queen Marika being all about the golden, pure gold, eternal, you know, long lasting age. And all these other forces in the game that are presumably evil being like, like pretty much like pleading and being like, no, this is actually a good, like death is actually a good thing. Rot is actually a good thing. Like misbegotten used to be seen as holy. You know, there's all these like old concepts that are scary. But when you actually like look deeply into them, there's like some kind of like beauty there. Um, and Melina definitely like embodies that philosophy, which I really like. Yeah, Elden Ring's all about returning to roots that you've forgotten. You know, like you start in the fringe lens where like there's all sorts of banished entities, you being among them as a tarnished exile. And you're all treated as like these bad concepts that are completely malign, but it's the structure in place from the Golden Order's belief set that makes that so. And like, it takes this idea of the Golden Empire, like you say, which is idealized, and it sets it up as having that sort of, you know, classic soul's take on it being not as great as it could be. But then yeah, at yeah. the same time, it's like Elden Ring takes, it takes so much trouble to make every single side have some sort of like appealing aspect to it. Like on the Golden Order side, you've got telling you that maybe, you know, blessings will flourish abundantly once more. Maybe things will be better if we just like stay the path. But then, you know, you, you talk about being a gallery defender and like, You've got this guy, Gowry, he's like the only wizard in Celia that hasn't turned himself into a spirit. He hasn't fled the rot that encroached on his homeland. He's completely embraced it. And through embracing it, he's achieved like an immortality. Like he cannot die because he can always find a new host and a new kindred of rot. And it's like, for him, this is like, a spiritual paradise like he he's cultivating buds and like i i watched your video before the podcast about like how rot represents a lot of the internal alchemy practices of buddhist like philosophy so like he's definitely oh. like taking this idea of cultivating the buds for millennia and i sort of <laughs> lost the train of thought but like no you no, had a lot okay. of good you had a lot of good thoughts out there you know it was I, all very well said a big hint with him too is like his hands um as soon as i saw him and the way he was sitting i was like oh shit this guy's like he's figured it out he's figured something out because his hands he's laid back in a really unique animation that no other npc has where he's like leaned back and his palms are facing upward um and that's like a really profound meditative state because you're if you're sitting and you're speaking to somebody and you have your palms facing upward it means that you are truly open to what they are saying and what they're speaking you're you're open to learning you're like so he himself even though he's you know like a scholar or like a a sage he's he's opening himself up to you he's willing to to talk to you about stuff and he's also the only npc that like cries openly in front of you outside like you know not even in a frenzy but like a genuine like sadness where he he weeps for millicent and he recognizes that she has to go through this like really profound internal struggle in order to achieve enlightenment and it's almost like 
you know, you see somebody who is cultivating her um, and her suffering and it's like awful, but he's not being Gendo from Evangelion about it. You know, he's not being like a, a dickhead about it. Um, he genuinely cares and like worries. Yeah. But she, she does make her own choice to abandon her pursuit. Um, and I, I feel like that's really profound too. Um, like her response to his, to his, uh, upbringing is like profound. Um, it is. It's, I, I just love their story. I love them so much. They're like a couple of my favorite NPCs in the game. But, uh, I was talking with Zablowski. They're like a content, they like rip content and make, um, really beautiful posts on, um, Twitter. They'll like rip assets and and make them like really easily available for designers and cosplayers and lore people. Um, I'll post their link in our chat as well. I think I've um, seen some of their content. It's really well put together. Some of the pages yeah. look better than the concept art books and how they're like arrayed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But the one that um, oh well, that's Twitter timeline. Why did that that link didn't work? <laughs> Hold on. So there's this one that they posted not that long ago um, that shows the like red. Um, it shows the kindred of rot, and there's some kindred of rot that have like the red spike that's coming out of their neck. And I was talking to them about it and talking just about how, um, you know, there is that like zombie fungus that controls ants. And it looks like that typically when it's like in, in control. Um, Oh, wait. That's interesting, because like that sort of red spike is aligned a little bit with the whole uh the cult of blood with Moog and the Lord of Blood, like with this idea like that blood is a controlling substance and that you see similar horns in the second generation Elbanorix. Or is that a is that a different form of spike? No, of it's a different kind of spike. Okay. It looks more um it doesn't look so much like, like a horn. Um, but it's like a little, just a little growth, just a little red bump, but it appears on the back of a neck, um, of like an ant or a bug. Um, I posted a picture in the chat, but what's interesting is that like a lot of the, um, kindred of rot that have it are the ones that are patrolling or are engaging in like religious prayer or, um, are near or in proximity with a mushroom lord. So there was like the mushroom lords who uh, seemed to be like in charge of of entropy, possibly before the era of the Erd tree. So yeah. and and that's helpful for forest. So like, obviously, it's like up to different animals, and every every animal has like a job in the forest, right? Every animal is in charge of breaking down carrion, breaking down like dead life forms. Um, there's scavengers. There are animals that will eat eat dead bodies um but there's also you know certain plant life there's certain um you know things that also help break down the dead matter so that way it doesn't just sit <laughs> you know just sit and go nowhere so fungus is like in charge of this it helps um but it also becomes intertwined with the root systems of trees and it will help trees communicate with one another on what trees need certain nutrients so um it kind of works as like a network, like like the internet for trees in a way, where trees can communicate which, you know, life forms need more carbon than others. Um, so there's like a distribution system that's set up via mushrooms. 
which is super fascinating. Um, I love mushrooms. They're really cool. <laughs> They're cool. And as I all. think I think that that's why Miyazaki uses characters like Elizabeth to to kind of like be in this game. It's it's turtles that are associated with with stamina regeneration. But Elizabeth used to be the stamina regeneration entity <laughs> in Dark Souls. So it's cool. It's cool to see. Yeah, she even had the uh, the mushroom named after her and everything. So, mm-hmm. um, it's interesting that Millicent's your favorite quest line. I can definitely see why it's. Uh... It's weird because it's um, it's not necessarily Millicent herself. I like Millicent, um, but uh, I don't know if I I agree with her. I don't know. I, her willingness like, to die because it's like giving no, up. No, it's uh, it's uh, it's not necessarily the willingness to die, but it's like um, the willing the the inability to let go of the individual self is like a hard path. Um, and Millicent is just like one of many aspects of Melania. So it's like you you have to be willing to let go of your own personal identity to become something else, and she's like unable to do that she can't reconcile that like she she'd rather die herself than become this other person that she doesn't even know and like uh i feel like you know when you're a young adult or you're a teenager and you're kind of going through life your sense of self and individuality is so important to you and it's something that you would like die for definitely when i was like going through my super angsty you know teenage phase i absolutely (laughs) absolutely would die for the self you know um but as I've gotten older and kind of like, you know, I've read a lot more um, philosophy and I worked as like a therapist and like a social worker for six years. So there's a lot of self-sacrifice that's involved and, um, you know, learning how to like take care of the self when you're exposed to traumatic situations. And uh, yeah, I've, I feel like the path that I've walked has taken me like a totally different direction than than where I was before. Um, when I was growing up. So I think that there's this like, it's not immaturity in a bad way. Um, It's just like, I probably would have made the same decision if I were younger and faced with that for sure. Um, I think that that's something that comes with age when you get really crispy and old, you're kind of ready to sacrifice yourself for others. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) No, I mean, that seems, I think that's even represented a little in the quest line. You've got Millicent who represents pride and like pride in some, view like through a lens through a certain lens pride is definitely immaturity it's the unwillingness to back down because of your own yeah she's the notion of standpoint yeah Yeah. and then you've got like gallery is like the older person who is like he he even has that quote where he's like maybe it's better to be forgotten you know his self is not important he's cultivating others Mm -hmm. you know even like you know the scarlet rod is the practice of death into rebirth you have to let go of the sense of self to become something else so it's yeah you become the lotus like you become the lotus that's blooming above the rot of suffering and like lotus flowers gain their nutrients from rot and decay like all the decaying water and like the sludge that's beneath them and the root system is like down in it though it's like down in the in the rot yeah but, yeah it's like it's this willingness to persevere um and there's a lot of like entropy and sacrifice and stuff involved and it's um it's definitely like a hard thing. I think that's why also so many young people, like I was mentioning, are just like afraid of death and decay and rot. It's just like 
it does represent a lot of like the death of the self and it's scary i think in a lot of ways yeah like i mean part of buddhist philosophy is that like you have to take an objective look within yourself past the like presumptions about suffering and it's only after achieving that true look into yourself that you can really come to terms with like you know the truth and whatever so i think uh I think that's very powerful imagery, this idea of a lotus born from suffering, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like the flowers blooming in the rot is like definitely a a really strong image. And I think uh, a lot of people will have that, you know, in the comments and, and whenever I like talk about it, will have that knee-jerk reaction of like, well, you know, there needs to be balance. And I think it it's such like a shame that uh, Melina and Mikola's weapon was taken from the game. Like it's no longer in the game because that was like the physical evidence of both Mikola and Melania's journey um, with the self being successful is that they accept their conditions and they learn how to balance each other. You referring I, to the twin blade? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. There's like abundance and rot just like together. Yeah, for and, those of you that haven't heard, it's it's there was this cut weapon, the twin blade of rot and abu and abundance, where like uh, we talked about that quote earlier. Essentially, Mikkel at the end of his storyline, he would have been present for the boss fight with Melania rather than abducted. So in that boss fight, he would have been the source of Melania's phase two, and I think I, the twin blade would have been, I guess, a reward from after the fight, where you like see the union of rot and grace malignity is that a word malignity i don't think Mal malignedness yeah <laughs> i know i know what you're saying yeah. like <laughs> that's that's another thing about like i think just like my videos or my content i just like free ball words sometimes so it flies it flies with me you're totally good <laughs> i don't you. know if it'll fly with your viewers but it flies with me <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, I mean, I think that's interesting, because it's like, I feel like in some ways, and I hate to be the pessimist, but I feel like in the rewrite that introduced Mikola getting kidnapped, they sort of took a much more pessimistic view of Scarlet Rot, which, like, I can sort of see why. Like, I feel like originally you've got this idea where, like, the Scarlet Rot is this thing that, like, hemorrhages you internally, and then the Omen have, like, these horns that hemorrhage them internally, and they're also born of, like, stagnation and rot. So it's, like, this, like, this confluence of design, and I feel like part of the idea was that they would all fall under, like, the general status of, mal like, you know, malignedness, as we called it. Um, yeah, yeah. The red, they're, like, the red malignedness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're not seen as good. And then, like, Mikola would have, in his quest to make the Golden Order perfect through unalloyed gold, would have realized that it's not, like, perfecting things that you have to do, it's welcoming them, so it's, like, conjoining everything. And I think that would have been, like, a big part of, like, his ending, you know, where you either, like, you know, like, there's this cut ending where you could have, you could, like, take Mikola's vision and imbue it on the Elden Ring, which is probably, like, a mending rune or whatever. But then, like, they cut it and they rework it, and now you've got this story where, like, the Halig tree is completely dead. It's just, like, rotted away. Like, it's hollow on the inside, and it used to have, like, this drainage channel, but the drainage channel's, like, overwhelmed, and it's just all rot, and... 
like Melania's like, my brother will keep his promise. But like, obviously, Mikkel is not in any position to keep any promise. And it's like, he might even have left willingly. So like, I feel like this is a much more pessimistic view on it in the current well, iteration what's, of the What's game. interesting, though, like an interesting, I don't know if it was leftover, like, a, like an artifact, but if you kind of hang out in the drainage channel and you peer down, there's like this giant waterfall of rot that's pouring down into the halic tree. But as it's like pooling in uh, Melania's boss room, it's like purified. All the water is like pure. It's completely transparent. It doesn't cause rot damage and um, it's fine. So it kind of seems like the there's like the drainage channel for Melania's rot that through the root system then becomes purified water, which is like, I wonder if they were trying to create like a self-sustaining system of like ways to create like the celestial dew to water the roots of the halic tree, kind of like the ancestral follower situation where they were like sacrificing the souls. Cause there's this like weird spiritual water that's associated with um the regal ancestral spirit. I think I was talking to somebody about it because I didn't actually know that it was a uh, that there was a name for it in Nordic mythology. Um, I just thought it was like water, <laughs> but there's this like I think it's like etir e or something. Uh, no, it will because the 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 water pours from the antlers, but there was an original ice that melted during the um, story of like ice and fire. Um, there was like an original ice that had like this special life force. And I guess it's like very um, like poison or toxic, but it's like the the water of all things, which is like weird, <laughs> but yeah, but it's a, uh, it's definitely supposed to be like the celestial dew in, in uh, Elden Ring, but it's interesting that like, Obviously, the dew that the ancestral spirit throws at us, like, kind of burns, like, does damage to us. I think it because it's supposed to be like the same the same substance. I want to say it was uh, shout out to Rocky Burns in my Twitch stream. We were talking about it. I think uh, she was the one who brought up that myth. I need to grab the the name of the substance really quick to make sure that I got it right. Because I didn't I didn't heard of that. I knew about this story of um, I knew about the story of Ymir. The fire giant and like i know about the whole creation myth but i didn't know about the substance of all life i didn't realize um i'm gonna link it in our chat ahoy there this is gideon from the future chiming in to say that obs didn't pick up my mic for this instance even while discord did so there's gonna be like a couple instances where quite like answers questions but you don't actually hear me so i just wanted to make that make sense for editing reasons i hope you enjoy it's very cool norse mythology so i'm leaving it in and uh yeah this has been gideon future self and my birds oh my god they're so loud yeah yeah there's like yeah because there's all the different wells that are at the base of the the yggdrasil but i've talked about that in a few videos before specifically in regard to like the ancestral followers this one is a is a little bit different than that myth this is a it predates it, it's like the the drop of matter that um gave birth to ymir but it was from the frozen ice because like but before there was even the tree or midgard um there was just fire and ice in like a celestial abyss <laughs> pretty much and then there were like cosmic giants that were just i guess floating in space somehow 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's how pre-mythological histories go, I guess. I never knew it, but looking at the wiki page you linked, the poison that they dripped into Loki's eyes as punishment came from the snakes born of the Aetir, like the the on the forever frozen ice. That's sort of interesting. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot that seems to loop in with it, but it's cool. It's a cool myth. It's a cool little Yeah. So I think that we're getting to a good time to wrap up the episode. Thank you for joining. This has been very enlightening. Um, is there anything yeah. that you'd want to cover before you uh you took off? Um, not not really that I can think of. I'm like, I'm actually because I used to do long form content. I probably should have introduced myself at the start of the episode because I totally <laughs> didn't even talk about what content I do. <laughs> um. Because obviously I do I do lore content, but they took the form of like long-winded rambles where I just kind of screamed into the microphone about stuff. And that um that's how I used to do things too, like 10 years ago. Cause I I was the first lore YouTuber. Um I I hold that title with pride because my videos are very embarrassing. <laughs> my old <laughs> ones are like super, super embarrassing. So that's the only thing I can really flex. Um but a lot of the time I would be in school or working two jobs or in this case, you know, back when I started my Elden Ring videos, I was working at Microsoft um, and I was busy. I was super busy, so I didn't have time to edit. Um, and I also typically don't have time to write a script. So what I do is I just sit down and I freestyle and word vomit about mythology and um, spirituality and the text in the game. Um and that's kind of my content. But now that I am focusing on like content full time until I can find another job, which like I don't think is going to happen <laughs> given the state of everything that's going on right now. So I'm just focusing on this right now. Um, but I'm going to be, you know, I've been focusing on lore tidbits with, with Vati where we just like do things in really short form format. I do like two minute long videos where I focus on individual enemies in the game. And then I have like my long freeform rambles, but um, I'm having a lot of fun actually like being involved in, in doing more writing and doing things in a more like traditional style. Like a lot of people on YouTube do. I'm obviously not going to get rid of my, my long form rambles because I know too many people like those, but um, yeah, I don't know. I stream, I stream more. Um, I've been I've been doing that. I'm trying to think if there's anything else <laughs> that I can bring up that I'm doing. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of what's been going on on my end. And I guess like in in terms of like my my favorite thing, I guess just research mushrooms. Look out! Look at mushrooms, y'all. Go <laughs> ha have develop a a balanced and healthy relationship with mushrooms. They're pretty cool organisms. I think that's about it. <laughs> yes go check out mushrooms and you'll find links to the rest of the content uh down below but definitely check out the mushrooms first they're important yeah yeah, yeah. that's sort of cool that you're able to like possibly make this into a full-time thing i have done almost everything like unedited that i post like my podcast is the only thing that I edit right now. Everything else is just word of honor yeah, or me like hard. talking. Well, yeah, it's a lot. Script writing, getting like video, like getting the video editor to cooperate, and like getting footage. It is a full time 
to y'all. Oh yeah, it's 100%. Like I I totally understand why people will release videos cuz there's like some content creators that will do you know like long format videos where they'll like have editing and and like writing and art assets and they'll only upload like once every 3 months or so because it takes them that much time to get put everything together. But I'm I was like flying by the seat of my pants when I was like just producing everything because I was working like 70 hours a week or like 60 hours a week. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's I'm not, I don't have time. <laughs> I don't have time. So just listen to me scream. <laughs> well, I definitely found the, found the fan base. So <laughs> yeah, I think your ideas I, I think have merit. Yeah. I, I do want to say though, like a German spy, Epic name bro, Vati and like all of the old people that I used to know. And, um, you know, that I still know, that I'm still friends with, the fact that they have been so, like, ready and willing to work with me since I've come back has has just been, like, so nice. It's been, it's been really nice. Like, it's like coming back to a friend group after being gone for so long, just because, like, life circumstances, it's been a, it's been a big source of support for me. So if it weren't for them, I'd just be, like, probably in a ditch somewhere. Oh. <laughs> Well, I'm glad things are going better for you now. There's definitely, like, I don't know, a sense of assuredness in social circles and community, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the Souls community is just great, period. Like, everybody in it that I've met is is awesome. And even, like, if I meet people where we have, like, conflicting ideals or, you know, opinions about things, we're able to, like, respectfully, you know, like, disagree or, like, just kind of, like, do our own thing and it's not a big deal but yeah it's it's a it's a really nice community yeah absolutely well thank you once again for joining it's been like a wonderful time to meet and entertain someone that's been such a long-term part of the soulsborn community um <laughs> yeah you that, that was a thank you that was a thank you but i was like covering my mouth sorry <laughs> oh, okay okay <laughs> okay just like um, <laughs> making weird noises now <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think that's all. Okay. Bye, everybody! Once again, I'd like to thank Quayleg for taking the time to chat with me at the roundtable hold. I'd also like to thank all the listeners who made it this far. It's certainly been an enlightening journey through all sorts of different topics. Let me know your own thoughts with a comment if you so choose. I'd love to know what people think of the Nier or Armored Core games, the Elden Ring theories we discussed, or he even who your favorite Norse god is. I'd also like to shout out Teo and the Cosmic Neighborhood for allowing me to use their fantastic instrumentals for my intro and outro music. And I'd also like to thank Agaric and Moog VFVB for helping me in making and distributing the podcast itself. Y'all are great. Coming up next will be an episode guest starring a member of the channel Square Table Gaming, a nowhere YouTube channel that's growing quite rapidly. Where we'll discuss Elden Ring and more, especially the recently announced DLC. Which I will now take a moment to gush about, because holy shit, Elden Ring DLC? I had almost uh, given up hope. But wham, they hit us out of the blue just after Elden Ring's anniversary. Deal 1-2. I know I'm dating this recording a little, but like, holy shit, I'm so in love with all of the possibilities that are going on in the Elden Ring DLC. Uh, it's eaten up my brain, 
like, rent-free in my mind. Pretty much every Souls content creator at this point has made a video on this subject, but for now I'll just shill my own theory video below, where I mostly theorize about how the DLC might take us to Elden Ring's previously unheard of afterlife, which would be awesome. There are so many possibilities. I want, you know, I want to fight, <laughs> I want to fight everyone. Glomide Queen, Godwin, a recently dead demigod, who cares? Who, who knows? Uh, thank you again for joining, and I will see you next time. This has been Elden Kings.